You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today, an award-winning journalist and an award-winning historian, William Stern Randall, after his career in journalism, pursued an advanced studies degree in history at Princeton University. He is a biographer of Benjamin and William Franklin, probably the father and son who hated each other the most in early American history. But we're going to ask Mr. Randall's opinion on that. Uh, He's also written biographies of Benedict Arnold, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and Ethan Allen. Mr. Randall also penned Unshackling America, How the War of 1812 Truly Ended the American Revolution. Mr. Randall's latest book is The Founder's Fortunes, How Money Shaped the Birth of America. But we are going to do a separate interview about that topic. Today, Mr. Randall is kind enough to discuss his previous books, which have merited so many awards and prizes that listing them all would take up most of our podcast interview time. And I'm not joking, dozens and dozens of awards. Mr. Randall is also Professor Emeritus of History at Champlain College, excuse me, and has appeared on C-SPAN, I looked this up, eight times to discuss history and his works. Mr. Randall, thank you very much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's my privilege and pleasure. Well, it's it's fun to talk to someone, uh, and this has been one of the pleasures of the podcast, uh, whose name I see every day because I have three of your books. That's music to my ears. (laughs) Let's get started right away because you've been so prolific and your books are terrific. So I want to jump right in. And start maybe in, maybe perhaps in reverse chronological order. Uh, you wrote uh, Unshackling America, How the War of 1812 Truly Ended the American Revolution. So how exactly did the War of 1812 end the American Revolution? 
Well, we won the war. Uh, everyone knows that. <clears throat> there was a peace treaty, which like most treaties has some gaping holes in it. Mm -hmm. uh, one of which meant every American had to pay every uh, shilling that he owned the English from before the war when they had no choice but to import from England. And the English had been running up the interest for eight years and insisted in the treaty that should be paid in gold and silver, which Americans didn't have. Uh, they didn't have any currency at the time. They had to use nine different coins to make change. Um, so <laughs> they didn't have money, and the English were insisting that they wouldn't follow another uh, article of the peace treaty, which was to take all their troops out at the end right. of the war. So they, uh, in the Midwest, around the Great Lakes, um, uh, Great Lake on Lake Champlain, there were still British troops, uh, and, and and this is this this went on for almost fifteen years after the fighting stopped. So it it, it came to blows though uh, when the French and the English started the Napoleonic Wars, and both sides attacked American ships who were trying to do business with England or France as they normally could as a neutral country. And America put up with it for uh, quite a long time. The British also were coming on American ships and taking off sailors. Uh, some 10,000 of them uh, were, the later word for it was Shanghai, um, and put on British crews. So the, the English were treating us as if the war wasn't over. They were still an occupying power, uh, and we were helpless. And finally, the Americans wouldn't take it anymore. Did we go to war with Great Britain or did we blunder into war with Great Britain? Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. <laughs> uh, we, we, we decided to basically to stop, start the fight. Uh, the blundering part is how we underestimated uh, the Canadians uh, because they had, they were still under the British boot. Um, Jefferson who had been president just before the war, um, actually put, wrote in a letter uh, that to take Montreal would be a mere matter of marching. Uh, that did not exactly work out that way. Um, so we weren't prepared. We had 20 ships of mostly small sizes, while the British had 700, for example. We had 3,000 basically militia, uh, it was peacetime, while the British had a quarter of a million men in Europe and in Canada. Uh, so uh, we started it, but yes, it was a blunder. Is it fair to say the War of 1812 is the Korean War of the 19th century? It's forgotten. It's kind of you know wedged in between two much larger, more impactful conflicts. That's exactly right. And that's why I decided to write about it. But but what makes it what makes it I'm going to say forgettable, but but there's very little that emerges from the war of 1812. I mean, I think your thesis obviously is right on the money. But but other than Andrew Jackson, I mean, what's memorable about the war? What comes out of it that affects the next 20, 30, 40 years of American history? That's what I asked my freshman. 
after they've had history in high school. Uh, and basically, all they can remember is Andrew Jackson, the Battle of New Orleans, which didn't happen during the war. And they probably know that, that it happened after the war. Uh, they know about the Star Spangled Banner uh, being written. They don't know by whom, but it's Francis Scott Key, of course. Uh, and they know about Dolly Madison um, for some odd reason, uh, but they don't know why. But those are the three facts that they remember. They don't know the significance. They don't know it was about uh, having economic independence, which was the main theme of my book. Um, uh, they, they don't know anything about how the war went or how we, we almost lost it. Uh, but, you know, sometimes a war is decided by who makes the most blunders, and the British happen to win the prize with that one. But yet, in, in the middle, obviously, I concede every point you just made, but but then there you have things like the Battle of Lake Erie. That seems almost miraculous in some ways. Um, it was almost miraculous, except this was, this is the really outstanding thing about the war. Um, a Russian diplomat observed at the time, talking to John Quincy Adams, our ambassador over there, you Americans, uh, you make wonderful ships and you know how to fight at sea, but you have, you have terrible armies. Uh, try to explain that. Well, the fact is we did make wonderful ships. Uh, we made ships far better and stronger than the, than the English. But more than that, we made them on lakes and the British had never fought in fresh water. Uh, they didn't know how to put mm. a fleet together on a lake. And we did it several times, especially the Battle of Lake Erie. So it's not a surprise to you that we won that naval encounter. Well, it's the details were quite surprising. I mean, the Americans should have been trapped uh, because they were they were uh, basically in a lagoon behind an island on Lake Erie. I've been up there. I've walked around it, and they should have been trapped, and the British should have kept them from going out on the lake. Um, but they were not only were, were Americans then very good shipbuilders; they were incredible sailors. Some of the tricks they used, uh, they were very good. They've been very good smugglers, which made them very good at eluding <laughs> British ships. Uh, they used all sorts of things that sailors outside of New England didn't know about. Uh, and, and a lot of the men who fought on the Great Lakes came from New England. Uh, so they, they, they took the techniques of the Battle of Lake Erie. Basically, they figured out how to build a ship and get it over a sandbar and out onto the lake uh, ready to go but to hide more or less behind the barrier until the very last minute so that the, the English ships couldn't get into them. Uh, this happened again on Lake Champlain. Uh, and the British didn't, you know, I'm, I hope I'm not hurting any Englishman's feelings, but the British don't adapt very well. Uh, historically, you can see this. They don't change their tactics. Uh, and, and we took advantage of that in the revolution. We took advantage of it in the War of 1812. To the point you made just a few minutes ago, uh, is it fair to say that some of the most inept generalship in the history of the United States took place during the War of 1812? Yes, on both sides. But at first, especially the American, 
we had a veteran officer from the revolution named William Hull, H-U-L-L. And he was put in charge of the army uh, on the frontier, which was Detroit. Uh, And he basically uh, lived in fear of being scalped, as so many people did at the time. And it was his it was his misfortune to have Tecumseh show up with his warriors <laughs> and surround the stockade. And basically, William Hull hid under a table uh, until he was ready to surrender without consulting his officers. So he goes down as the first American officer convicted of uh, cowardice. We had historian uh, Peter Cousins. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Yes. Uh, on the, on the podcast. And he told the same story. It just, it just seems that, you know, you can say what, and we'll get to George Washington uh, towards the end of the podcast, but you know, some, some strong generals emerged at the end of the revolutionary war for sure. But it, but the war of 1812, it seems like it just, there's no direct connection between one set of, of generalship and strategy and another, um, the strategy of the war of 1812, take Canada, but then it's like they had no plan and please correct me, but they had no plan to defend our own capital, which got burnt. And that's exactly right. Uh, It's because the secretary of war didn't believe the British would attack Washington. So they did nothing. It was totally exposed. Uh, And and also it was a grudge match. Uh, We're so blinded to what happens above the, 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 the 45th parallel that we don't know that we destroyed the capital of Toronto, of of Ontario province, what is now called Toronto, was called York then. We invaded it, uh, we looted it, we burned it. Uh, Our admiral in charge actually stole all the books from the local library. Uh, The men drained all the booze from the taverns and all the silverware from the church and people's homes. It was a really shabby affair uh, by by the Americans because their commander had been killed and there was no discipline left. Their commander was a young officer named Zebulon Pike, who almost climbed the highest mountain in the Rockies and has a, a mountain named after him. But he was he was blown up. Uh, Somebody lit a match to 500 barrels of of gunpowder right underneath him. And that was the end of Zebulon Pike and of any order or discipline. So the American army ran amok and and destroyed what is now Toronto. And that's why the British decided to attack Washington, D.C. We gauge uh, Michael Beschloss wrote a book. The name is escaping me at the moment, but it's basic. I think, yeah, it's called Presidents at War. And we tend to grade our presidents, the ones who serve as commander in chief during actual shooting. And some of them reach mythological status, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, for sure. But what do you make of James Madison's performance as commander in chief during the War of 1812? He never should have been. Um, he was he was a very good politician. Uh, but he took the title of commander in chief too literally. So when the British attacked uh, Washington, he went out and tried to rearrange the military positions of his uh, secretary of war, his generals, etc. Totally messed things up. Uh, and, and so that battle uh, in Bladen's Bladensburg suburb of Boston is known as the Bladensburg Races 
because the American army ran so fast to get away, while Madison basically screwed everything up. Uh, so he was he was a great statesman, but he was he, I have to rate him as our worst commander in chief as president. But he's the, also the only president who led his men into battle at the time. You would rate him worse than Lyndon Johnson? Well, Lyndon Johnson, fortunately, didn't go to Vietnam and lead mm-hmm. troops himself. Point taken. Uh, <laughs> but Madison tried. He tried. He went out there and, and, and he had he had uh, uh, James Monroe along with him further screwing things up. So. <laughs> uh, one last question about about your book and about the war. How do you rate or what do you make of Andrew Jackson's performance at the Battle of New Orleans and that victory? Well, strategically, it was brilliant. He should not have won. Um, but he he made use of what he had, which was uh, frontiersmen from Tennessee, um, uh, f- French, uh, some of them almost pirates, privateersmen from New Orleans. Uh, he, he took advantage of all these cotton bales that were lying around, and he thought about it, that the, the, the British cannon were not going to do anything but get sucked into the bales. Uh, so, uh, and, and, of course, he, the British commander was an absolute fool who, who personally led 2,000 men right up to this within range of the American marksmen. But uh, a- Andrew Jackson controlled the battle. And it was over very, very quickly. One of my most prized possessions is I have um, the marquee. Actually, my son is named Andrew Jackson uh, Ah. in in honor of both the seventh president and the sheriff of Mayberry. (laughs) Who's named Andrew Jackson Taylor. But one of my most prized possessions is a copy of Marquis James's biography of Andrew Jackson. And it's signed by Charlton Heston. Oh, my goodness who played Andrew Jackson in two movies. And oh, when yes, I, he did. When I gave it to him to sign, he looked at it, looked at me and, and smiled and said, I'll gladly sign this. So uh, Jackson's power in the 19th century, uh, obviously his, his, he's taken a bit of a beating these days, but his legacy for standing up to South Carolina and some of the other things he did was so powerful in the 19th century. Uh, do you think it's a direct result of his performance at the Battle of New Orleans? Well, definitely. I think he was the only figure that came out of it with uh, anything to be proud of. Um, and, 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 and when, when, when John Adams uh, brilliant son, John Quincy Adams ran against him, people just jeered. Uh, at him. Uh, at, the Adams has had the distinction of being the only family that has lost the, the second term twice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of it was John Quincy Adams was up against Andrew Jackson, the most popular uh, politician in America uh, before the Civil War. Well, do me a favor, write a book on Henry Clay's corrupt bargain, and we'll have you back on for sure. (laughs) How he stole the uh, 1824 election from Andrew Jackson. Uh, We are talking with Willard Stern Randall, who is not only an award-winning journalist, 
but absolutely an award-winning historian. Let's talk a little bit about Ethan Allen. Uh, you, you wrote a biography of him, and uh, he's he's almost like a whirlwind. It's like he bursts onto the scene at the beginning of the Revolutionary War. He end, ends up getting captured, and then just kind of, I don't know if Peter's out's the right term. How would you describe his impact, especially on the early years of the war in New England, one of the Green Mountain boys? Well, the fact that he caught the British literally napping, sleeping, uh, and was able to capture a state-of-the-art cannon, making it possible for Washington to drive the British out of New England, uh, that should be enough of a claim for him. Uh, But then he tried to replicate that. He was, um, he didn't know the word subordinate. So the Continental (laughs) Congress made him uh, a general and and gave him uh, the Green Mountain Boys a a regiment. And he had that stature, but he would not take orders from his boss, uh, General Schuyler, number two in the American army. Schuyler had signed a, a, a law that, that would have put Ethan Allen in jail. So there's bad blood there. So Ethan Allen decided to go off on his own. I mean, if he could take Fort Ticonderoga, why not take Montreal too? So he tried to, with a pickup crew to try to take a British fortress, uh, not only uh, uh, with British troops, as many as he had in it, but with 300 Mohawk warriors standing by. And he described it himself. Uh, the two-hour battle uh, fought from two miles range was the greatest waste of powder of his entire <laughs> life. And he was captured. But that his major contribution isn't for Ticonderoga. It's because he refused to be exchanged by the British uh, as long as he, he had to be exchanged for an officer of equal rank uh, and Washington backed him up, it became our prisoner war policy. Ethan Allen was the linchpin of our prisoner war policy, even down to today. Uh, equal rank and length of, of uh, uh, imprisonment. Uh, so he, he hung in there for 954 days under horrible conditions. Uh, and when he was exchanged, he was exchanged for a member of parliament. So, but that became the prisoner war policy of the U.S. Army in the Civil War. Uh, so his contribution really was to Washington uh, to give him a policy of how to deal equally with an enemy when he really had no right to. Uh, so I, I would I would add Ethan Allen. That's his major accomplishment. And and John, isn't that a policy that John McCain invoked? during the Vietnam War. Exactly when, right. When the North Vietnamese wanted to exchange him, once they found out how famous his father was, and McCain refused to go because right. of how because of people who had been there longer. That's exactly right. And McCain McCain knew the he knew his history, he knew the rule book. Uh, so he suffered terribly uh for doing that. Another person uh, whom you've whom you've chronicled, who starts out the war and maybe for the first couple of years could be called the, the strongest commander we have, Benedict Arnold. What was it like to write about him and try to get inside his mind as he goes from patriot to traitor? 
I knew I was sailing into a headwind. Um, uh, my, my own father was a, a history lover and buff um, with family in the revolution and all. I uh, thought it was, it was a little bit of treason on my part to be writing about a traitor uh, and to be writing about the loyalists. Um, but it, I was writing about him during the Vietnam War when we all had questions about what was right and wrong and what the Americans were doing and how much like the British we were behaving. Um, so to me, it was a big open question, what really happened? When you have somebody who's vilified that much, uh, you really have to open up the lens and look at the whole life. And he was Washington's most trusted field commander and field commanders have an awful lot of authority. And he was very good at that. He had, he had, terrible faults, uh, but they were not unusual. He was he had a, sort of a, a, a Middle Ages idea of pride, uh, and it was yeah. his pride that undid him. His hubris, he, and he was, he was like so many of the generals at the time, God forbid that every little slight was magnified and never forgotten, and, and you read it, whether it's Gates or, or um Charles Lee, the list goes on. These these American generals, especially, just speak disdain with them. They they were they had what's called Irish Alzheimer's. They never forgot. They forgot everything but their grudges. <laughs> well, John Adams described an all night meeting of the Board of War in, in in Congress, and he said he had never seen such children as all of these generals. The way they worked out on each other. Uh, yes, and 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 Benedict Arnold threw it all away basically, uh, because he was passed over for promotion so many times during the Canadian invasion. He actually kept a chit of how many meals he served to uh, members of Congress and generals when he was mil military governor of Philadelphia uh, after Saratoga. So uh, he he became so disenchanted that he lost sight of 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 what he won and he came away believing that the United States couldn't win and he was going to be on the winning side. Boy, was he wrong. And it's interesting because if you, any, any scholarly or reasonable reading of the battle of Saratoga, so we're talking September, October, 1777 right. Right. Uh, Gates is an overall command of the American forces up there. But it's but it's Benedict Arnold that makes it happen. Is that fair to say to make that victory happen, which is the seminal victory, the water, I would say the watershed victory of the Revolutionary War? That's exactly right. Uh, if if the Americans hadn't stopped the British at Saratoga, uh, it would have been all over. They would have been the British would be free to go on to New York and join the British Army and Navy that were already there. New England would have been cut off. Uh, France could not keep supplying us or helping us. Uh, there were two factors. One was uh, Arnold's courage, uh, actually ignoring Gates' orders and charging right into the, the guns. Mm -hmm. uh, his horse had 32 bullets in it. Uh, after his last charge, he was shot in exactly the same place where he'd been wounded in, in attacking Quebec. Um, if he had died at that point, uh, he would have been the greatest hero of the Revolutionary War. Uh, unfortunately for, for him, he lived on and he 
it was it, it, all the grudges, all the grudges uh, came out until the British had an easy time p- turning him. They targeted him clearly. They were aware of his discontent. Yes, they were also aware that he'd lost his entire fortune mm-hmm. and actually was dealing uh, contraband out of a shop in Philadelphia to keep going, which is pretty ignominious. How different would the war have been if Arnold had succeeded in betraying West Point and some of his other schemes? Well, I think it would have been all over because the British would have captured Washington, his entire staff, uh, including um, Hamilton, Lafayette, uh, if they, if Arnold's scheme to turn over West Point, never mind that he was turning over his own men, many of them had fought and been captured with him in, uh, mm-hmm. in Canada. If he had succeeded, um, I, th- I think the, the American people would have given up. Not only would, would we have lost Washington and, and the other generals, but the idea that um, Arnold of all the, this, this hero of the war so far was a, was a, a turncoat and he was going to come out on top. Um, I, it was the darkest day of the revolution um, uh, when, when, when Arnold uh, uh, defected. If anyone who's listening to the podcast wants to read about something that just makes you shake your head, like how did any of these guys survive? Read about the invasion of Canada that that Arnold was a part of in the early years of the war. They took Montreal, as I recall, but couldn't take Quebec. I think that's right. right. Please correct me. But right. the the deprivation and the weather conditions and the famine conditions that these these patriots, these Americans endured as they tried to uh, capture and conquer that part of Canada. It's simply mind boggling that 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 anyone survived. And the only thing that I can compare it to in recent history is, is literally the Russian front in World War Two on a much smaller scale, but still just absolutely brutal. Yes. Uh, the march to Quebec is one of the great epics of, 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 of history uh, that Arnold could lead a small army through swamps and a forest in the wintertime, losing everything, all his medical supplies, all his food, all his boats, and still attack Quebec at all. Uh, the, the story of the march to Quebec was enough to make me want to. Uh, want to write about. And actually, I was so lucky because my wife uh, had, a, had a job uh, with the university in on the Riviera, and I had to write about the march to Quebec, looking out my window at an orange tree uh, <laughs> uh, with 35 bags of books that I'd toted along. So I, 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 I recreated that march. I think it's, it's, and and the French, when they wrote the first history of the revolution, they called Arnold Hannibal. They likened him mm. to the great general of the of of the Roman times. And Washington was still a footnote. Called, he's being called a, a logician. So at that point, it, Arnold was the great hero of the American Revolution. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you thought, and it's a reasonable bet, especially contemporaneously that Arnold thought the British uh, 
they were going to win the war. But Arnold, who lived past the surrender at Yorktown and the Treaty of Paris in 1783, and the Americans, as I recall, tried to get him, like, we'll exchange prisoners, but you give us, you give us Arnold, and the British would never do it. What do you think was going right. through? Um, they wanted what, what, they wanted to exchange. Washington wanted to exchange Andre, the spymaster of the British, uh, for Arnold, and uh, um, the British wouldn't give him up. Although no British officer would serve under him when he was given command, not one. The only men that he had under him were deserters from the American army. And and John Andre was eventually hanged, but he was. but Arnold lived past that, so he lost his bet. What do you think was going through his mind as he laid his head on the pillow at night after the United States had had secured its independence? Believe it or not, he wanted to get into the next fight, and so he got into the Napoleonic Wars. Mm-hmm and attacked the French uh, in uh, Guadeloupe, uh, in, 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 the, in the Caribbean. I mean, he, he thought he could redeem himself. He actually, he actually sued somebody in Canada where he'd taken refuge for his reputation because he'd been called as, as a traitor um, in Canada. And he sued for his reputation, and the jury gave him two shillings, sixpence. Uh, for the value of his <laughs> reputation. And so he left Canada and went to England, and then he went to the Caribbean. He kept fighting and digging the hole deeper. His wife is the one that kept them alive. She had to sell everything. She she couldn't even go home to her family in Philadelphia because of the mob outside of her mother's house. But Peggy Shipman is, is, yeah. is a great story, and she stayed with him. She's probably the first welfare mother because she got a pension every time she had a child. She got a pension from the queen and she kept she kept having children and they all wound up being British generals. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Willard Stern Randall, award-winning journalist, award-winning historian and biographer. It's said that we live in Hamilton's America. How true is that statement? Well, that's very interesting. Um, That question is why I wrote about Hamilton. I had just finished um, going around plugging my biography of Jefferson, and I stopped in New York City on the way home uh, for a meeting of the American Revolution Roundtable, which professional historians, but very um, well-versed Wall Street lawyers, reenactors, et cetera. Mm. And it was when, when, when it was all over, I was absolutely exhausted. And from the back of the room came this voice of Mr. Randall, uh, who was right, Jefferson or Hamilton? And I was too tired to go on. So I said, Jefferson for his time, Hamilton for ours. 
And I got home and I thought, where did I get that? I don't know much <laughs> about Hamilton. And I went to work on Hamilton. I would say, yes, Hamil this is Hamilton's America after the Civil War. Uh, Jefferson's America uh, was defeated uh, in the Civil mm. War. I think that's the dividing line. It's interesting that the great rivalry between Hamilton and Jefferson, it, it seems to me in my reading that Jefferson respected Hamilton more than Hamilton respected Jefferson. Please, please correct me, because when you read about it, Hamilton's opinion of Jefferson is so tainted by slavery, by Jefferson's owning of slaves. But yet sometimes when Jefferson is asked about Hamilton, I forget, maybe it was Madison or someone who asked Jefferson about Hamilton. And Jefferson's reply was, when it comes to his mind, he is a host unto himself, that there was some real respect there. Am I gauging that that relationship? I think you correctly? are. That's a very that's a very interesting question. Um, Jefferson lived in his mind. He did not live in reality. I mean, he he piled up debts. He he, he was a compulsive shopper. You know, he, he was not at all realistic, but he lived in his mind. And it's the mind of Jefferson that gave us the Declaration of Independence, but also uh, a dreadful embargo that bankrupted the country and led into the War of 1812. Hamilton felt morally superior to Jefferson because of slavery. Uh, but Hamilton's experience was entirely different. He was he was orphaned and he went to work in a trading house in the Caribbean where his job was to wash off the slaves as they came off the ships so they could get more money at auction. So he had this lifelong hatred of slavery. He founded the first abolition society. Uh, and yet his wife owned slaves and so did his father-in-law. So it was an issue that wouldn't go away for a minute. And Hamilton wound up looking down on Jefferson, uh, even to the point of not paying attention at all in the Napoleonic Wars and wanting America to be on the side of the English again, uh, which was unthinkable to Jefferson. Wasn't Hamilton's father-in-law, the Philip Schuyler, who you were mentioned just a few minutes yes, ago? Yes, uh, the, the fellow who didn't like Ethan Allen. <laughs> yes, that's right. But you mentioned just you mentioned Britain just a few seconds ago, so let's let's talk about that for a second. Perhaps in in the view of twenty twenty one or fifty years ago, let's say, modeling the United States on Great Britain would seem to make a lot of sense, especially with how much more powerful Great Britain got in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. But at the time, in the late 18th century, this must have been incredibly controversial, was it? Well, it was, because for almost all American commerce was with England. Uh, the, the coastal cities, towns, New England, etc., all traded with England. Uh, England was the great power that had defeated the French. Uh, so that seemed logical. Uh, the parliamentary system seemed like a good idea, just so you didn't have a king. Uh, 
and, and and we wound up basically imitating a lot of of the English system with uh, two houses of Parliament. We have two houses of of Congress. Uh, we don't have a king, but uh, sometimes they think they are. Um, so, um, but it was. Jefferson had the foresight. He was he was so brilliant. He knew that people were going to turn their backs on England. They were they were going to go across the mountains where they wouldn't need the English for commerce. He he looked west. He he built a house Monticello on the farthest ridge that was settled in Virginia. His his view was literally to the west. He sent Lewis and Clark to the Pacific. So he's the visionary, and Hamilton was the practical one. You know, that's a terrific point. I mean, we've all anyone who's studied American history at any length is familiar with Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis of American history. Uh, but Jefferson foreshadowed that in saying, look, the Louisiana Purchase, here's and, and Sherman said that to Grant before Grant went to Washington to assume command of the Army of the Potomac. Sherman begged Grant to stay out west saying, I think the quote is, here is the seat of the coming empire. You know, don't go east. But Jefferson knew that before anyone. Yes. Well, Je Je Jefferson, among other things, was a failed lawyer. And he was a failed lawyer because he had a problem lawyers have had ever since. Sometimes their clients don't pay them. Jefferson spent eight years on horseback in the Shenandoah, representing people with no money, people whose only book was the Bible, whose only furniture was a tree stump. He knew these tough people who were going out there and working hard to make a new kind of land. And he's the one who drew up the plans for Lewis and Clark, telling them exactly what to, what to do. So his mind went west at a very early time. He gave up the practice of law and decided to write a political theory. Um, so it's the mind of Jefferson from that time on. Um, more than anyone else, he was he was the visionary. Hamilton was practical. He'd, he'd been an apprentice in what they call accounting house, <clears throat> basically a clerk, uh, shuffling merchandise. He also learned smuggling and made an ideal collector of customs. I mean, he took every opportunity and put it to work politically. They're so different, but you can't understand what went on unless you unless you you, you know about both of them, that dynamic. And that gives us our political parties, for better or worse, the difference between their two minds. One of the questions I'm going to ask you at the end of the podcast is if there's if you could witness any event in history, which one would you choose? So I'll give you a I'll give you some time to ponder that. But let me give you a freebie. How much do you wish you could have been in the room as Hamilton and Jefferson went at it? Oh, what a wonderful question. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the results of it is Washington, D.C. Why in the name of God <laughs> would you build a capital in a swamp? Uh, and we have. Uh, unlivable uh, and unbearable in the summertime. So you wind up with having such short sessions of Congress, even with air conditioning. Um, so there the vision broke down. They had to make a bargain. It's called the dinner table bargain. Mm -hmm. I would have loved to have been at the table. Was Madison, uh, the, was Madison the other one at the table? Is that Madison right? was there. Mm -hmm. 
Jefferson knew just what to do. He gave them some very good French wine. I had years of learning about it in Paris. Uh, and basically, they, they, they horse traded. Uh, Jefferson and Madison couldn't afford to go to Congress. They couldn't. They didn't have any money. They and they went to Congress in Philadelphia. They were so broke that their horses were turned out of the stable for lack of rent. Uh, so they wanted a capital in the South. Hamilton said, "No, the capital has to be in New York. That's where the money is." And Jefferson and Madison said, in effect, "Oh yeah, well you can't get your money through Congress without us." I mean, so they, they horse traded for an evening of drinking and arm twisting. And it was one when it was all over, both went away happy. Uh, New Yorkers have never forgiven Hamilton for giving up the capital. In effect, they've tried to make it so. Um, uh, the, and the, the Virginians, I think, uh, won politically, at least for uh, 80 years, most of the jobs in Washington. And, and I think it's still true are Southerners. It's it's a southern city, especially prior to the Civil War. That's a point that's made by historians over and over. Um, Jefferson's reputation has taken a bit of a hit in the last ten to twenty years, I would say. Plus, uh, I mean, literally and figuratively, when it comes to his statues, as as a historian, how do you how do you look at this without getting too much into the controversy? Because that's not the point of the podcast. But do you look at it? Uh, from the perspective of 2021 or is it easier to look at it from the perspective of you do know this is the man who wrote the declaration of independence and secured the Louisiana purchase. I look at it two ways. Um, one, there is an expression, um, something called the sin of presentism, the sin of presentism that we judge the past by our own ethics, our own morality, our own judgment, uh, and you can't go back and change it. And the other one is a Shakespeare line. The evil that men do lives on after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. I would say that about Jefferson. I would say that about Benedict Arnold. You, ha you have to go into American history if you're going to write it and not be judgmental. You have to be more of a reporter. Um, mm. but, but you also have to have a soul and some ethics of your own. So it's very, very tricky. Uh, so I try not to um, I sort of, I judge the sin, but not the sinner. Another cliche, I guess. Uh, we'd be in we'd we we'd be in a different country without Jefferson. We'd be in a different country uh, without slavery. I mean, uh, but we we you know uh, we can't go back and remake history. So I'm the old investigative journalist. Give me the documents. Give me the diaries. Let me see what I can come up with. And I can't take it beyond that. Why didn't Jefferson take up arms during the Revolutionary War? And do you think that that Washington, uh, who was immensely brave, and especially Hamilton, who was a frontline combat soldier commander, do you think right. they looked at him differently because he didn't? Well, yes, but only to a point. That, and that, that is the point that most historians have overlooked. And that is 
that Jefferson, as governor of Virginia, is the one who sent an army west under George Rogers Clark mm-hmm. to drive the, the Tories, the loyalists, out of the, the Midwest. And he actually had the British commander brought back uh, tied on and sitting on a horse facing backward all the way to the governor's palace in in Charlottesville. And he kept taxing and raising the money to keep a Virginia army in the Midwest. So was he there personally? No, but we we wouldn't have had the the Midwest uh, diplomatically had an easier time getting it if he hadn't come up with that idea. Uh, Also, we also, uh, I I write for a magazine, Military History Quarterly, and I I got to do an article there on how Jefferson actually saved the powder supply of Washington's army by getting it away to safety when Benedict Arnold with his his army uh, attacked after Arnold's treason and sacked Richmond. But Thomas Jefferson was missing for a couple of weeks because Richmond is where the gunpowder was made, and he managed to get it away from the British. Again, one of these turning points that historians can miss. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast with award-winning journalist and biographer slash historian, Willard Stern Randall. For those who don't know, Jefferson really turned on George Washington. Jefferson was Secretary of State and Washington was President. Jefferson went so far as to to use, I believe, State Department funds to uh, support an anti-Federalist, anti-Washington broadsheet. What led to the falling out between Jefferson and Washington? The French Revolution. Oh, Washington... Washington never stopped being a general as president. Uh, He didn't really have a cabinet. Uh, He had a staff and he gave orders. And and when Washington went away with Martha on vacation or down to to rest uh, at Mount Vernon and Jefferson stayed in Philadelphia, the capital, uh, he told him what to do. And Jefferson, as secretary of state, um, was pro-French. The French sent over an ambassador who was violating uh, neutrality by uh, lining up privateering ships to attack from American soil against the British in the Caribbean. And Jefferson leaned too far toward France. And basically, uh, uh, Washington came back from vacation are just ripping mad that Jefferson had allowed the citizen Genet, the ambassador, mm-hmm. to uh, arm ships and 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 line up a cruise, uh, sacrificing our neutrality uh, in this war between England and France. So, um, I think Washington was uh, uh, expressed his annoyance pretty much, and Jefferson uh, said, "All right, um, I'm out of here. I quit. I resign." That's that's. It's hard for us to imagine how frail these people, heroic they are, but how thin their skin is. Time and time again, they that hubris, they give mm-hmm. up uh, the main chance uh, when, when somebody uh, puts them down, for want of a better phrase. Happened with Jefferson. No discussion of, of Thomas Jefferson, uh, especially the latter period of his life, is complete without 
without an exploration of his reconciliation with John Adams. Um, discuss their correspondence towards the end of their lives and how they how they got they got their friendship back after years of acrimony. Adams defeats Jefferson in 1796 for the presidency. Jefferson then defeats Adams in 1800. And you want anyone who thinks that politics is worse in 2021 than it ever has been in American history, read a good book about the election of 1800 and then follow that up with a good book about the election of 1824. Uh, politics in the early 19th century was absolutely hateful, brutal, but but they reconciled and famously died on the same day, July 4th, 18, 1826. Uh, you you they- couldn't you couldn't write a script any better. <laughs> uh, the answer is Abigail, Abigail Adams. Abigail Adams and Jefferson were on the same sort of intellectual. Um, I, I, I don't want to compare their intellects, but they had a lot a lot of a lot in common. Uh, very cerebral. Um, uh, Jefferson was a widow. Uh, I think he was fond of Abigail, but not in uh, any physical sense. Uh, so they spent a lot of time together when when Adams and Jefferson were in Paris as as ministers to France. So I think Abigail got a little annoyed at John sometimes uh, when uh, he John Adams. There's a song from the show 1776. Sit down, John. Sit down, John. John never said anything short. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I can just hear him on a tear about Jefferson and Abigail just uh, giving him an icy look. And did, uh, and did John Adams knew, have the thinnest skin of them all? Did John Adams have the thinnest of the thinnest skin? I think so. Yeah. Doesn't the song <laughs> say it even? Um, but uh, she recognized how how close they had been and they're old now. And and what brings them together other than Abigail is they're so sick of what people say happened in the revolution that really didn't happen. So the correspondence is the two men back and forth say, what really happened 40 years ago? Uh, and, and Adams, when he, when he stopped talking sometimes could be brilliant in a few words. And he said it, you know, one third of Americans were, for independence, one third were on the British side, and the other third depended where the armies were. I mean, how better mm-hmm. can you sum up uh, this civil war within a war? That's John Adams at his best. Um, they had to get past so much because John Adams remained a Calvinist, a Puritan. Mm-hmm. And if Jefferson loathed anything, it was Puritanism. But Abigail was the one that got them together. But then they kept writing and writing and writing. And they and they kept writing until they died on the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and, and Jefferson, Jefferson was dying in, in Virginia. Adams was dying in Massachusetts. Uh, to the end, they were competing. And, and you have uh, Adams dying. Sort of his last words were, Jefferson lives sort of, oh, dang, Jefferson lives. Well, in fact, he was he was wrong then, too. But this <laughs> happens the same day within within a matter of hours. You wrote a biography of George Washington, which I've read. 
and remember uh, how much detail you you put towards kind of the beginning, kind of the foundation of Washington and and that really set him up for the rest of his life. And I thought it was a great book and biography. Uh, I had David O. Stewart on the podcast who wrote more of a political biography. And you yes. put the two of them together. He was a terrific guest. It's a wonderful book. You put the two of those books together and and you really had uh, a complete view of, of but what made Washington who he was and then explaining in some ways how how Washington's uh, Weltanschauung uh, towards towards life at the end, how it was formed. But if I were to do a podcast and and the point of the podcast, the thesis was uh, that George Washington is the greatest, most impactful American who ever lived. How how off would my thesis be? You know, this is a question I, I'm C-SPAN puts a hundred or so of us uh, to work every time the White House changes hands. So four times now, I've been one of the people who's supposed to uh, rank the presidents. And it, it, it's always either Washington or Lincoln. They mm. seem to trade places. Lincoln's, Lincoln's in first place now, but it's been Washington so much. Um, of the time, he he really in, in he really invented the presidency for one thing, uh, but with a kind of humility that was so refreshing uh, among world leaders. Uh, George George the Third, who could get things right once in a while, uh, said that if Washington resigned uh, as as general. He would be the great greatest man of the 18th century. Washington resigned twice, and that stunned people. That he would get power and he would relinquish it for the good of the country. I think that makes him head and shoulders above uh, most politicians or most leaders in the world. Um, he was incredibly brave, uh, even if even if he was. I have to say this: not a great general. Uh, he lost more battles than he won, but every time he lost one, uh, people re regarded him more for his bravery for staying in the fight. You know, everybody knows the story of Fort Necessity, where you put a, a terrible scratch crew of militia uh, in a bowl full of water surrounded by <laughs> trees with Indian marksmen behind it. Uh, you can't win. But when it was all over. He, the, the, the royal governor pleaded with him to stay. He was given command of a, of a regiment. Then he did very badly uh, with Braddock's march to the Monongahela, but mm -hmm. he was the only officer not wounded, even though his clothes were full of hole, bullet holes. And Americans looked up to them as this courageous man. So he gives America someone courageous as an image of what a leader and a president should be. John Adams tried hemming and hawing and trying to figure out what to call President Washington. And he came up with some long phrase, supreme leader of the great, you know, went on. it went on for 15 minutes. And Washington said, no, Mr. President. I mean, that really sums up the man, that humility that people admired. Uh, he would go to the door himself and let the British ambassador in. Jefferson did the same thing. Uh, he did not believe in uniforms. He showed up at the Continental Congress with his uniform in his suitcase. Not He wasn't wearing it. 
but it was there in case the country needed them. Um, and, you know, th- th- there's a, a Roman figure called Cincinnatus, mm-hmm. uh, the man who turned his sword back into a plowshare. And that's the image that, that Americans had of, of Washington. Of, so he embodies so many elements that Americans admire that it puts them right up there at the top. But when you rank them, who do you put first, Lincoln or Washington? I've seen some polls that have Lincoln first, FDR second, and Washington third. I keep putting Washington. Lincoln is a great tragic figure. Uh, Lincoln and his Emancipation Proclamation um, are among the two or three greatest deeds in American history. Um, but because of the the or the length of time that Washington inspired Americans, there would have been no United States. Uh, for if it hadn't been for George Washington uh, several times. And that's the key to your point. He lost that's, battles. Yeah. He lost battles, but he never lost his army. That's right. Mao Zedong imitated him in keeping his army out of reach of the Chinese nationalists. He imitated George Washington and consciously. So he's he's been a model to some of the worst people in the world. But uh, Leaders can look at George Washington and 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 have a pretty good idea of what Americans respect. I want to ask you one quick question. I have a few more here as we wrap up the Leaders and Legends podcast. So you wrote a book about the relationship between Benjamin Franklin and his son, William Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, obviously, is was probably the most famous man in the world prior to George Washington, perhaps. But but what led, what caused the fallout between William and Benjamin? And why does this fallout and the impact of the fallout still resonate, especially among historians of the revolutionary period? William Franklin was illegitimate in a world in which that was <clears throat> a, a, a sin, a terrible deficit. Uh, Benjamin never, and it's it's a great mystery who the father of William Frank or the mother of William Franklin was. I spent a lot of time on this, um, but King George the Third gave legitimacy to William Franklin by making him a royal governor, mm-hmm. uh, which was I think far beyond the expectations of of uh, William, and certainly beyond the wishes of Benjamin. New Jersey. So right? Benjamin had raised him as his son, his legal executor, and all that, and he winds up with the son on the British side, just as Benjamin Franklin is deciding to break away from the British. And neither son, neither would give in. They had a three-hour argument, uh, and when it was all over, um, Benjamin Franklin said, uh, "You're wrong. I, I wish you would come with me." Um, and and went off to fight in, in in the revolution. And the son said, uh, "Then you will you will you will burn uh, by the light of the of the conflagration." Words to that effect. Uh, William Franklin couldn't believe that the Americans could win. He thought his old man had lost it. 
Benjamin Franklin believed more than anything else in personal loyalty. And he couldn't believe that his son would not come with him no matter what. And uh, he publicly disinherited his son when he died for the part he took against me in the late war. He left him not a sou. Uh, he actually stayed home so he wouldn't have to vote when the Continental Congress sent William off into solitary confinement in Connecticut. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a terrible tragedy, uh, but neither man would give in. My favorite American battle of all time is, and particularly of this period, of course, is the Battle of Cowpens, January 17th, 1781, which... Which forces, which is the which is the 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 starting point of Cornwallis ending up in Yorktown and surrendering in October nineteenth, seventeen eighty one. What's your favorite battle, American battle of all time? Of the all time or of the revolution? All time. We'll make it harder for you. This is a. This is this is. A, a tough one. Let me start with the revolution. It's definitely Saratoga. Um, there are more elements that keep coming up. I've I've just finished a book, uh, Founders' Fortunes, and I really get into how much, how materially the French had to do with our winning that battle, which became the turning point because the French then believed that we could win. The right. French actually. Uh, sold us the cannon. The British had no clue what they were walking into at Saratoga. It's French artillery that had been smuggled in uh, and brought by oxen over the mountains. Terrific surprise with a Polish engineer designing a battlefield, European style, that the British couldn't get past. I mean, it's an, if you take the totality of it, it's, it's, a, it's a brilliant battle. Uh, you have a fool for a British commander, but that's not unique. Um, <laughs> and, he, a ga- had, and a gambler. He a, yeah, he had a he had a state of the art army with him, uh, but the the people in England had never been to America. No English lord had come over. They thought the place was flat, and it was the American frontier, the mountains, the lakes that defeated the British. But it was the Americans. Uh, um, Tadeusz Kosciuszko, the, the Polish engineer, um, the man who smuggled the guns in, um, Silas Dean, who's wound up believing like Arnold that the Americans mm-hmm. couldn't win, but he arranged the guns to be arrive at exactly the right moment when Schuyler was sure he was going to be defeated. And so the British crossed the Hudson, and there they are with a hundred large French cannon and uh, with enfilading fire. And then, and then Benedict Arnold, we have to deal with him again. You know, Arnold had, had stopped the British invasion at the Battle of Alcor Island, loading and firing the cannon himself. Mm-hmm. He had invaded Canada. And, and here the British come make another try. They come down from Canada. And oh, my God, it's Arnold again. <laughs> and he leads the last charge. I mean, it's I don't Shakespeare could not write anything more dramatic than the Battle of Saratoga. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast with historian and journalist Willard Stern Randall. We've reached the point in the podcast where we ask the same five questions of all our guests. And actually, I have some other questions 
Mr. Randall, and I'm going to save those until you come back to discuss this your is ta- new This book. is tantalizing. I, I need time <laughs> to rehearse. <laughs> first question, what was your first job? Reporter on a small town newspaper in Pennsylvania, the Pottstown Mercury, um, where a smart old editor just turned me loose and let me write, uh, when I finished my assignment sheet, write my first history column. So I started writing history as I started working. Number two, what was your first concert? Um, it wasn't a concert per se, per se. My parents didn't go to concerts, even though we lived in Philadelphia. Um, but when I was a young re- reporter outside Pottstown, where I worked, uh, was a ballroom. Uh, that was the day when you had the big bands. So the concerts, if you want, you could dance to because I loved Glenn Miller music. I could go out with the Glenn Miller's orchestra. They were all there. Uh, Louis Armstrong showed up. Um, mm, all the great terrific. jazz. Yeah, it was wonderful. And th- those were the concerts. When I moved into Philadelphia and became a Philadelphia journalist, I worked around the corner from the Academy of Music. And for two bucks, you could climb five stories into the nosebleed seats and hear the great symphony. So that, that was my musical background. No wonder you have such a love of the revolutionary period growing up in Philadelphia. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful city. Yes. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? War and Peace. War and Peace. It's worth the time. It's incredible. And if you bring an imagination to it, you understand so much more about the 18th century and about generals and politicians. Um, It's, uh, I think, unsurpassed. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? The British surrender at Yorktown. One of Washington's greatest moments when it was his greatest moment. And the British, the British had a knack for for dramatizing their disasters. So when the British (laughs) came out to lay down their arms, literally, their military band was playing a hit tune from London called The World Turned Upside Down. And that's what was happening. And Cornwallis feigned sickness and wouldn't show up to the surrender sent a subordinate the subordinate then tried to give the sword to washington and washington refused to be insulted so he pushed him on to benjamin lincoln who had been humiliated in a battle just a year or so before yes charles at a a wonderful moment from washington like not only not only have i beaten you but i'm going to refuse to let you humiliate humiliate me Last That's question. why I would love to be there. Oh, absolutely! And I've been I've been to that battlefield. I've, it's 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 a, it's really a state park as well as a national park. Yeah. It, it, it's it's really worth the visit. Uh, just you know, you can feel this coming up out of the ground. What what happened there? I've been there as well, and then they do a terrific job of explaining how it all came to an end, like yes. what what the Americans did. And then obviously probably the most underrated uh, naval battle in American history, the battle of the capes right off, right off the uh, siege site. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, 
living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? I've given this a lot of thought. And uh, at first I was going to say my wife, but she wouldn't hear of it. Um, (laughs) I'm going to say, I'm going to say Barack Obama. I think he, his mind and his wit at the same time would make a wonderful few hours of conversation. What I would say is you are in great company because he is by far the most popular selection. Wow. And it's interesting too, because probably the second most popular suggestion is, or, or answer is George W. Bush. Mm. Who's a, who's a a bona fide history nut. I didn't know that. I really didn't know that. I knew Clinton was Clinton. He's a big civil war buff too, as I know Clinton. Yes. Clinton was a biography buff. He had a room full of biographies. History Mm -hmm. book club gave him the buy for the, the most biography loving president. And so when my Jefferson book came out, he actually put it on the credenza in the oval office next to a, 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 a statue of Mother Teresa and something like So when Brian Lamb of C-SPAN took a, a tour of it, uh, what are you reading now, Mr. President? And Clinton said, I'm reading Nip Dan and New Biography by Willard Stern Randall. Two years later, Brian Lamb went back and said, what are you reading now, President Clinton? I'm reading this outstanding new biography by Willard Stern Randall. So <laughs> make of it what you did have you met Clinton? I should ask. Have you did you get a no, chance I to have meet him? Not. No, well, I have not. Well, Mr. Lamb, who's a famous Hoosier, hopefully he'll make that happen for you. Well, Mr. Lamb made a lot happen for me. I uh he's a wonderful man. He's had me on a couple of shows. And um t- to me, he's the quintessential journalist from the small town and how far you can take what you learn in a small town. So for, for me, he's a role model. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been award-winning journalist and historian Willard Stern Randall. He's going to come back on in a few months and discuss his new book, The Founders' Fortunes, How Money Shaped the Birth of America. And hopefully we'll get to discuss why Thomas Jefferson and George Washington were always broke. But until then, Mr. Randall, thank you so much for your time. It's, It's a complete honor to get a chance to talk to you, especially after having read some of your books. And thank you for having me on on Veterans Day. That meant a lot. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.